TSX or no audio. Hello everybody, it is nine o'clock in the evening on Saturday, February the 17th, 2024, and we are rapidly approaching the end of week seven, section one, the anti-war headlines. Oh, and first of all, I wish to continue to pay accolades, serious accolades to anti-war and especially Dave Camp. Although Jason Ditz has had quite a role this week too. They provide an invaluable service. And I'm very grateful for what they do. Moving on, section one, the genocide. Netanyahu doubles down on plans to attack Rafa despite growing criticism. Biden not reconsidering, quote, unequivocal, end quote, support for Israel's Gaza slaughter. Israeli minister blocks U.S. flower shipments into Gaza. Israel proposes creating U.S.-funded tent cities to evacuate Rafah. Israel's Ben Gavir says Israeli military should shoot Palestinian women and children. Netanyahu rejects hostage deal drawn up by Mossad, Shin Bet and IDF. U.S. gives Israel the green light to kill civilians in Rafah. Netanyahu unilaterally vetoes further hostage deal talks. Israel scoffs at reported U.S. post-war Gaza peace plan. Israeli military says Hamas will not be defeated in Gaza offensive. After call with Biden, Netanyahu rejects Quote, international dictates, end quote. The impending conflagration. Iraq says it resumed talks with US on future US withdrawal. Israeli drone strike kills two near key Lebanon port of Sidon. Houthis hold funeral for 17 killed in recent US and British strikes. CIA chief Burns heads to Egypt for Israel-Hamas hostage deal talks. That's on the 12th. Israeli airstrikes kill nine civilians in Lebanon. UAE, other Arab nations, reject US ability to launch airstrikes from its territory. Heavy US and British bombing reported in Yemen's Hodeidah province. Egypt building walled camp in Sinai Desert to absorb Palestinian refugees from Gaza. Pausing for aeroplanes. Hezbollah fires rockets in northern Israel after deadliest day of strikes. US conducted cyber attack on alleged Iranian spy ship. US launches airstrike in Somalia says two al-Shabaab killed. Next section, Leicesterland, using the term coined by Professor Lawrence Lessig, referring to the US. Seized Russian yacht is costing the US over $7 million per year to maintain. Senate passes $95 billion military aid bill for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Senator Van Hollen calls Israelis, quote, war criminals, end quote, votes to send them $14 billion in new military aid. 
House's top China hawk to lead congressional delegation to Taiwan. House Intel chair accused of disclosing national security, quote, threat, end quote, to get Ukraine aid passed. House passes bill to work against countries normalising with Syria. NATO stand. EU's top diplomat, that's Joseph Jungle Borrell, slams US for continuing to arm Israel. Dutch court orders government to halt delivery of F-35 parts to Israel, Ukraine slash Russia. US rejects Putin's latest offer for negotiations on Ukraine. Senate takes another step towards passing $95 billion foreign military aid bill. More aeroplanes? China slash Taiwan. Air Force, Space Force announce major overhaul to prepare for war with China. End of anti-war headlines. Before we continue to section two, other voices, I don't like being alarmist and uh, predicting the future <laughs> is a notoriously difficult thing to do. But I had a rather horrid uh, premonition when I read the title for Egypt building walled camp in Sinai Desert to absorb Palestinian refugees from Gaza. And this relates to the discussion between McGregor and Napolitano on judging freedom, about which I wrote an article. And two things. First of all, the building alliance will require a causa's belly, a reason, a justifiable reason to destroy Israel. And the movement of refugees from Gaza, Rafah, into the Sinai, across the Philadelphia Corridor, or Saladin Axis, is a potential causus belli. All that needs to happen is that the IDF attack fleeing refugees on Egyptian territory. Egypt has already said they'll tear up the peace treaty, and that is enough for the whole thing to kick off. That is how close we are, in my opinion, and I'm sorry to be alarmist, but just looking at where things are going, this things are getting very serious. In Other Voices, section two, the collection of things, and I've ranged a little further afield this week than previously, which is good, because it's nice for me to sort of spread my wings and look around a bit more at the very wide array of things that are out there on the intermittent media space. Uh, and if you hear the odd birds getting happy, that's because it's six o'clock in the morning now on Sunday. Anyway, we begin with Caitlin Johnson, just the, <laughs> the zeitgeist game. Uh, and she makes a very valid point that in the article titled The Perfect Recipe for a Real Anti-Semitism Crisis. And it's a beautiful point in that it's uh, the lesson of crying wolf and that essentially the crazy Zionists who are pursuing this genocide are creating serious trouble for other Jews who want nothing to do with this. And that this is the one of the fundamental problems that some of the Orthodox Jewry have with 
the redefinition of anti-Semitism to say that anyone who objects to the policies of the government of Israel is an anti-Semite. That conflates uh, uh, Judaism with a state religion, which it is not. And this is the problem that they see that is going to be delivered upon them because of the idiots who attempted this redefinition, i.e. the people from the Anti-Defamation League who are propagandists and Zionists and so forth. So, anyway. Um, and I've added underneath that a wonderful piece by Patrick Lawrence, The Crisis at the New York Times. And it, it because it partially relates to that, the short piece by uh, Caitlin. Uh, but please read. I mean, read whatever you want. But it's a, just a wonderful piece of work by Patrick Lawrence. And in the impending conflagration section of a, a short article by Bernard from Alabama entitled Nasrallah Responds to Israeli Attacks on Civilians in Lebanon. And this follows a theme which comes up later. There's a bunch of thematic interconnects uh, going on in, in section two. And that is about read what they say and watch what they do. And in this case, he's quoting a live transcript and names the person who did the transcript of a speech by Nasrallah, uh, speaking of the attacks in Lebanon, uh, which Israel has pursued uh, this week. And so we can see there are, just from the anti-war headlines, there are nine civilian deaths. Uh, these are deep inside, or well, at least one of them was the port of Sidon. But there's an awful lot of attacks that have happened on the townships on the edge of Lebanon. And it's worth understanding that the area in the north of Israel, uh, which the Israeli government is very upset about, the fact that Nasrallah and, and his uh, Hezbollah movement are attacking, are on stolen land. Syrian territory, the Golan Heights, which was uh, captured by Israel in the six-day war. So, so who's attacking who from who's attacking who from what, whatever, and that. And there's oil and gas underneath that, as I noted in the uh, article uh, related to the McGregor interview with Napolitano and so forth. Anyway, um, so have a look at that. Uh, it's a lovely piece of reporting by uh, Bernard. I love what he does. Often, some of his articles are very in-depth and involve an awful lot of research and a very uh, determined attempt to understand what's going on behind the veil of rubbish which is being spewed forth by the mainstream media. I mean, I like making fun of them, um, but that's not very clever, really. Whereas what Bernard often does is he smells a rat and then he puts in an awful lot of effort to dig up what's actually going on. So that's one of the things he does. But he's also done other things like this, which are very brief reports, but they really cut to the heart of what's going on. Um, you know, read what they say, and here he is quoting Nasrallah and highlighting elements of what Nasrallah was saying, which would inform the reader. He's very good at this. Anyway, um, so much as I'm, you know, thankful to Andy Warren, particularly Dave DeCamp, Moonval Bernard from Moonval Alabama is very good at this sort of reporting too. So moving on, we have Leicester Land, i.e. the US, uh, and we have an article called Throwing Good Money After Bad in Ukraine by McGovern and Wilkerson, Colonel Wilkerson. And it is very much in the style of a VIPs memo. 
uh, to the US Congress rather than the President. I advise the reading of it for two purposes. First of all, if you're a US citizen, it's interesting to see what these people have to say. They're intelligent, informed commenters. And secondly, it is worthwhile, I believe, to understand the style in which they're speaking. It's very reserved. <laughs> There's nothing outlandish about it at all. It's just a very calm observation of history. Clarifying, getting rid of all of the rubbish that's the, the thematic stuff swill that swirls around the mainstream media. Pushing that aside and going, right, <laughs> here's what's going on. So they're very good at this, uh, and I recommend reading it. And then we have um, an article by Professor Jeffrey Sachs, which is echoed in a video that he, an interview that Napolitano holds with him on judging freedom. It's called How the CIA Destabilizes the World. And of course, around here, all very much aware of this. That's not new to us. But it's, it's good to see uh, that Professor Sachs is highlighting this known fact. And then we have... And uh, interesting, which is, uh, article is sort of interesting from Larry Johnson, right? An update: President Trump was a victim of espionage, both foreign and domestic. And this is another one of these common themes, and this is the theme that the uh, the sins of empire, uh, which are committed abroad, are visited at home. And in this case, this really derived from the Snowden revelations back in 2013. It was interesting because I brought that up not too long back, on that uh, the anniversary of the uh, Pyatt Newland phone call. And it is that uh, the the CIA and the NSA and so forth, these intelligence blobs, uh, they have foreign counterparts. It's called the Five Eyes Network. And when it is that a politically aligned element of the intelligence services wish to spy on their own <laughs> potential, well, their own political figures, in this case, Trump, and they need to do a little end run around the restrictions against doing so. That's fine. Let's call up their friends at GCHQ. I mean, they could call up Australia, New Zealand, Canada, but it's like, why would you just go straight to GCHQ? They're much better at doing this stuff. You know, they've got all the tech. Great. <laughs> Hello, GCHQ. That's the British the British version of the NSA. We need you to go full on hardcore on Trump, right? Everything, everyone, anyone who comes in contact with him. We want, you know, you know the normal three steps out think fuck that we want six steps out go full bore and that's basically what happened to trump so uh, as larry lays out in the discussion he stacks this on to the end of the intelligence uh, round table um, which is also in the videos below uh, that they just go full bore and so this stuff about you know Mafsud and papadopoulos and and page all of these are just these are multiple extensions out from uh, Trump being thoroughly spied upon and then ginned up into into uh, stories that are pushed out into the media. It's all part of the Russiagate thing, which we know comes from Clinton, the Clinton camp, and it, in, with the assistance of elements of the FBI and the, and the CIA and the NSA and the GCHQ and everybody else. Why? Because Trump is a threat. He, and they thought they'd get away with it as... Uh, McGovern points out in the discussion, because they expected Billary to win, and therefore they would control who the um, uh, Justice Department would be investigating. Very simple. So, to, just to be aware, so there's this theme about, you know, the, <laughs> the sins of empire. 
<laughs> this is like, what is the line about the, the, the sins of the father visited on the son? Well, it's just the, the imperial version. <laughs> you do shit abroad. Oh, and then you learn about how that shit works. And then you start doing that at home against your political enemies. And the echo of that is also further below when we get on to Craig Murray. <laughs> Anyway, moving right along, uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, there's a lovely little piece from Pepe Escobar called uh, Life During Wartime on the Road in Donbass. And essentially, if he's not already on the Mirotovitz hit list from Ukraine, this will make sure he is. <laughs> so this is, this is like a little mark of honour for, for serious Western journalists. If you, or um, artists, Roger Wallace is on this list, for example, the bass player from Pink Floyd. Yeah, so he'll definitely be on the list now. And it's a very interesting piece. It's not the most beautifully written uh, of his pieces, but it's it's tender. And for me, it indi- it's just an... He's a roving reporter in a cultural sense. He's been all over the damn place in Asia, particularly Central Asia. He's And he's quite interested in culture and history. And so he subsumes himself in local culture, does his best to understand what's going on. And in this case, that means communicating with the reader the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and its role in what's going on. And for me, it echoes one of the elements of Russia's culture, which is an undeniable thing. You know, they've had European armies march across their borders and trying to come and, you know, dismember Russia. For centuries now, and they get a bit sick of it, practically. And these these forces fail. And the reason they fail is because the Russians, they're a tough bunch, and they just don't give up. <laughs> and there is a, se- a great sense of solidarity and fraternity. And there, there's a, one element in the, in the story where Escobar mentions this 86-year-old lady who's part of a you know, network of... Of delivering assistance to people closer to the front lines or whatever the hell it is, it doesn't really matter. And I just went, hang on, so when was she born? I'm, quick calculation, 1937, right? So she was a, you know, five or six at the end of the Second World War. She knows this stuff, and this is the point <laughs> about Russia. And there's a great line on the, uh, on the port in Mariupol, which has been repaired, right? it's a very important shipping terminal, uh, after the big battle of Mariupol and so forth, which plays a... Uh, a role in the in the story. It's worth reading the article. And they painted it. It's red, white, and blue. The Russian colours, right, on the on the uh, the terminal's seawall. And it just says, "Mariupol is Russia." <laughs> Have you got it? <laughs> no, we're not going anywhere. So it's so it's great because in the article I see the things that I've seen in reporting by, for example, Patrick Lancaster. That article I wrote ages back about there's that thing with the the lady offering strawberries to Patrick and Sasha as they're in this house and there are shells going off, Ukrainian shells going off all around them, as an astonishing moment. That and and you you see Patrick in his flak jacket and all the rest of it flinching at these sounds and this woman, I don't know, she'd be in her early forties, mid forties, I don't know, it's hard to tell people's age. It, unmoved, she's in in a in a, a thin shirt, <laughs> and and extends this bowl of strawberries, which of course uh, Patrick takes one of, right? Because you shouldn't re- 
This is etiquette, right? He understands the culture he's in. This is it same sort of echoing Escobar? He understands. He should take, he should accept the um, generosity being offered and take one, <laughs> because these are precious things in in a life of that degree of suffering. To to share that is is speaks of the person that he's with, and he understands that his side of the etiquette and understanding. Take one, <laughs> and I'm sure the same would be true with Sasha. Uh, videographer. Anyway, I'm wandering afield again. And then we have, ah, yeah, this is interesting. Very short article. Uh, Russia has long sold arms to Iran. Now Iran is returning the favor. And I saw this at Natalia's place, Understanding Russia. And it was the author which caught my view. It's Fred Weir. He writes for Christian Science Monitor. And I've read a few articles in the past uh, by him. And this article is very short. It doesn't uh, it's not terribly fascinating and so forth. I've included it because of the author. Fred Weir, he writes good good pieces. They're, this is one of the things that uh, a publication like Christian Science Monitor can do. I presume it has a sufficient support amongst the religious community in the US to survive the sort of onslaught on journalism, which uh, Chris Hedges actually put out an article on this Today, was a supporting piece for an interview he did with um, a lady Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from... doesn't matter. There's this onslaught going on. But, but Christian Science Monitor is able to withstand this sort of gutting of journalism which is going on in the US. And therefore, it can maintain people like Fred Weir. Uh, and he's a great writer. Um, and Vert keeps things very, very short and clear and doesn't... frees himself of all the sort of narrative baggage. <laughs> it's like, OK, here's what's going down. He's good. Anyway, so that's why he's included. And then we have another couple of short pieces from uh, Bernard of Moonham, Alabama. The end of the Adivka cauldron and listening to what he is saying. The reason I mentioned, well, the first one about Adivka is obvious, right? Russia is about it. That cauldron is about to close and then, you know, either the <laughs> Ukrainians give up <laughs> and uh, then they'll survive and they'll get appropriate treatment as prisoners of war and so forth or they'll die. That's <laughs> what do you want to do. Um... And then the next one is listening to what he is saying. And in this, I reference this primarily for the reference that, that Bernard puts within it, which is he's reusing the title of another article of Patrick Armstrong, who is an excellent commentator, Canadian commentator on Russian affairs, who stopped writing for some strange reason. I didn't find out exactly why. Um, and so the, <laughs> this is a reference to a reference. Read the piece by Patrick Armstrong, is what I'm saying, as well as just a quick uh, run through what uh, Bernard is saying. Um, and again, I'm mentioning that because I've read a lot of Patrick's work, and he's a th very thoughtful commentator. And if we go back to, for example, Professor Paul Robinson, also Canadian, he withdrew uh, his commentary on Russian affairs at the beginning of the SMO. He was shocked, like many of the rest of us, that, oh my God, we'd been pontificating about what was going on in this territory and all of a sudden a war had started and that caused us all to be somewhat shocked because that meant a lot of people were going to die. We weren't just playing with words anymore. People's lives were on the line. And so that caused a lot of um, internal assessment from commentators, and myself included. Um, so it's interesting to see that uh, Patrick Armstrong has sort of withdrawn his commentary. Uh, but he's very thoughtful in what he has to say, and therefore I'm sort of encouraging, if you're interested in what he's writing, go back in his archives and have a look. Uh, so another reference to interesting people like Fred Weir and so forth, Patrick Armstrong. 
And then under geopolitics, we have a word like peace is faster than the bullet of war. BJ Prashad, the seventh newsletter for TISR. I haven't read this. I will, but I sort of don't need to. There's one of the things here, which is I've, I've been doing, before I even started publishing, years and years and years, doing a lot of research. So I've become aware of certain authors um, that I understand well enough. So when I see a piece by Fred Weir, for example, I know it's going to be well-researched, calmly expressed, useful information. The same with, with Vijay Prashad. It will be historically referenced and cited. It will be humanitarian and global in scope as to what he does. So um, sometimes I don't, always, I don't always read all of the things, as it were, because I already understand the direction. They're, and they're, these people are sufficiently consistent that all it will take is a quick scan. And I go, oh, yeah, good, right. So, so sorry in some regards that I'm not always doing an entire... Uh, survey of the material I'm recommending. I'm basing that upon experience. Anyway, uh, then we have... Uh, here's one I haven't read entirely, just a qu- quick scan. Um, the death of uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, the Brits did it <laughs> by Gilbert Doctorow. So I'm not quite sure. This is, I read the beginning, and he was saying, oh, it's interesting how being on on, uh, on television or an interview program you know, sharpens the mind. So he's laying down some position here because, of course, the media will be going blah, 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 Navalny and so forth, and I don't know what happened. I've got no idea, and I really don't give a shit because the guy's a criminal as far as I'm concerned. He was a complete stooge of the you know CIA and MI6 and the rest of them. I mean, I couldn't give a shit about him. So anyway, that's there if you're interested. I think it's a complete waste of time, but there you go. Uh, and then here's something completely out of the blue. Another one by people that I think publish interesting, uh, well-researched material, and this is Ellen Brown. Published at SharePost, diffusing the derivatives time bomb, some proposed solutions. This is a serious problem, the derivatives time bomb. So I just put it on your radar. I find reading stuff about um, uh, finance to be interminably difficult. It's full of jargon, which is which excludes one from being easily able to engage in the topic and still I know that it is really 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 important right geoeconomic politics so uh, I put that in front of you for that purpose that you may learn (laughs) and suffer as I do Uh, and we move on to Assange and because it's all this shit's coming down right the last chance for the Assange's legal team to uh, use a legal mechanism to encourage (laughs) the British judiciary to advise the executive branch of government that they should not extradite Assange because it would amount to making them a laughing stock and killing him and all of the above. Right? So don't do this, you idiots. So there's going to be a lot of um, coverage of this as it goes on. Uh, and now's a good time to do a little review on who knows stuff about this. So back to Chris Hedges. He's travelling to Britain to cover this. Uh, and here we have... Uh, First of all, an article, which I'll come back to, but just below that is uh, Kevin Gostola on the final Assange extradition trial. And Kevin Gostola is one of the few people who's been following the Assange case since before it was a case, (laughs) like since year dot. So he's one of the few absolute experts. And the others include Craig Murray. (laughs) So I'm... 
quite partial to the Assange um, situation because it's obvious uh, revenge. It, it, is, it was panic stations when they realised what he was doing. He's trying to use established WikiLeaks, took the work that was done by Aaron Schwartz, who I keep mentioning, <laughs> called SecureDrop, and then modified that to create a mechanism whereby uh, whistleblowers could supply authentic documents to WikiLeaks. And then when that started to really blow up, as in millions of documents started arriving, the uh, powers that be in the US went, fuck, we can't have this. Because the purpose was, as I've mentioned, of course, I mean, there's, a, there's an element, I think, to Assange, which is there, there's some degree of egotism involved, but I don't really care about that. What he was trying to do was create an authentic archive. Uh, of history, so to understand what the bastard's doing, basically. It's like the ultimate form of journalism. So when they realised that this is what was going on, it's like, oh, shit, we've got to stop this. So this is sort of a panic to stop it. And then there's also the revenge, that particularly um, uh, Assange and Clinton, <laughs> Billary, hate each other <laughs> and have been trading barbs across the Atlantic, essentially, and then you get this. Once, when he released Vault 7, the question is, why did WikiLeaks release Vault 7? So this is the um, Salt, Salty uh, release, right? The internal tools of the CIA, cyber weapons. Why did they do that? It was, it was a shot across the bow. It was an attempt. It was a, look, call your dogs off, or I'll really go full on. And I'm sure there was a warning. I, as I recall, there was. There was a warning about this. Don't do this. Don't come after me. Otherwise, you'll suffer. So we do, they do come after him, and he goes, well, screw you, and releases this. Doesn't release the tools themselves, just descriptions thereof. So it's not, it's in the thing, back to the old story of, oh, you know, his, people have died because of the stuff he's published, and which has all came out in the wash in the trial of um, then Bradley, now whatever her name is, Manning. Um, but no, no one's died because of what they've released. And same in this case, right? There was the, here the, the description of what they were capable of rather than the actual tools themselves. And that leads to the next thing, which is the fact that the CIA can, they leave telltale markers behind when they hack stuff to indicate that it was, you know, some other organisation. It's classic, you know, intelligence, uh, what's the term? Yeah, false flagging, right? This is intelligence false flagging. Jesus. And what were the five languages? Oh my God. Chinese, Mandarin, right? Farsi, Iranian, Persian. And whatever it was, the other five, you know, North Korean and da 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 right? Usual, just point your fingers at the enemy, boom, there it is. So, you know, all this shit came out. And, that, and this is what drives Pompeo to do his uh, wonderful assessment of, of WikiLeaks, describing them as the ultimate news agency, a non-state um, hostile intelligence service. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so that's why that says that on, on yes, X or no. Except not intelligence service, but opinion service, because I don't do intelligence, I just do opinion. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, so that's Gastola. Check out Gastola. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, sorry for the big circuitous route there. And then uh, we have, yeah, uh, Australian PM Albanese and 85 other MPs vote to end Assange incarceration by... Diego Ramos from Sheer Post. And this is evidence of the work that's coming out of Ramos, who I uh, have already assumed is one of the protégés that um, Bob Shear has been training at Sheer Post. And the, the, the reason I thought this is worth highlighting is because it's, a, it's an article that's very short, <laughs> in, uh, but very detailed 
in its referencing. It describes that the, an act was put forward in Parliament in the past in Australia, and then we, you look at the numbers if you like, and it's like 85, 4, and then the government 77. So that means some other people have um, joined the government to pass it because the majority is 81, and then um, there are the opposition of 55 and 46 vote event or 42 vote against something like that, and so not all of the opposition vote against it. So it's quite. It looks very much like a um, uh, an event in Parliament where there, where there was not um, the whips went out. Right? So it was like a freedom to vote as you wish. Certainly from the the government side, although it looks very much like the entire um, Labor Party, the government voted for, and then others joined. So. But it includes a video of the a section of this uh, the bill being put before the parliament and the transcript of parliament, Hansard, as it's called in Australia. So it's very detailed reporting by Ramos, and I just thought I'd highlight it for that point of view. It's not a, it's not a hugely important political event, but it's an example of the sort of reporting uh, that is coming out of Shear Post through the young guns, which um, Bob Shear is uh, assisting in learning their trade. And lastly, we before we get to videos, we come to Life by Craig Murray, which is two sentences, and conclude the second of which says, there's been a, a sequence of uh, you know curious burglaries that he's withstood, including his passport, his credit card, his wallet, his whatever, driver's license, I can't remember. Right? Go check it out, it's short and sweet. The question is, why the hell is this happening? What's going on there? Well, here we come back to the sins of, of, of empire being revisited at home. So Murray spent three years after being an ambassador. He spots the CIA torture program in Uzbekistan, blows the whistle on that, leaves the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and then starts becoming a, a political advocate. But, uh, befriends Assange, joins WikiLeaks not as a, as, a, as a member, but as an associate, if you like, and is involved uh, in WikiLeaks. Uh, knows it, for example, as on this week's Intel Roundup, Johnson categorically states that Seth Rich was behind the uh, the leaks of the DNC emails. Yeah, I haven't gone, you know, to the all thing. It's too brief. He was at least behind a very large amount of them. Anyway, um, so Murray knows about that and lots and lots and lots of other stuff. But really, <laughs> amongst other things, he's a Scottish nationalist. He wants this. He wants Scotland to be independent of the of England. Piss off, <laughs> English. <laughs> we don't like you anymore. Um, and so what he did is cover the trial of Alex Salmon, who was a very effective Scottish uh, parliament, well, politician and parliamentarian, and is very much a Scottish nationalist too. And he had to be taken down to uh, prevent the furtherance of the Scottish political action towards Scottish independence. And so he's taken down by um, a bunch of poor allegations around sexual misconduct and laws which exist, well, procedures which exist within the judiciary to protect the identity of those accusing others of sexual uh, assault and so forth were used by the Scottish prosecution in the case against Salmond, when in fact it was a political witch hunt. So, you know, these, these protections exist for good reason and they were deliberately misused in this case because it was political targeting. And so Murray covered the, the trial in great detail 
and published uh, on it at his uh, website. And then spent three months in prison because he supposedly revealed more about the identity of these uh, witnesses or accusers uh, than uh, everybody else when this was obviously not the case. The whole thing is just bullshit. Uh, it's quite interesting. Anyway, so he spent three months in prison because of that. Uh, and they're coming after him again. And suddenly someone has stolen his passport, his wallet, his <laughs> driver's license, his what? All of a sudden, what? Like, I think we can, first of all, we know what's going on here. Hello, MI5. That's the domestic version of MI6. Uh, and second of all, what's about to happen? Oh, the trial on Assange. Uh, I think we can, can we just put two and two to here together at four instead of anything else? Anyway, so I bring that to your attention just to see this is the persecution, right? This guy's been persecuted ever since he shacked up with WikiLeaks after having exposed the CIA torture program. He's pissed off a lot of people and they are just coming at him. Uh, of course, uh, because he's a former diplomat, he has um, some friends in places of influence, so he has some allies as well as a lot of powerful enemies. And now we move on to videos and here is <laughs> the, some of the further afield stuff. This is a 54 minute interview with Janos Varoufakis. Uh, and if you don't know his story, uh, this is not a bad way to learn a little bit about it, but the interview is actually about the nature of power. Uh, and so I, I think it's very good because essentially this is something that um, Janusz Varoufakis, the uh, academic uh, economist, has been studying since he was a kid. <laughs> and I'm only about two-thirds of the way through the interview. I don't know if he's got into the point where he he's... Childhood in Greece was under the um, sort of military rule. <laughs> this is the CIA controlling the government of Greece back in the day uh, that his parents um, withstood, so, oh, lived under. Yeah, very interesting, man. Uh, so I put that in there as sort of, if you want to get away from all the rubbish that's going on in um, Israel and Ukraine and give me a break, check this shit out. Varoufakis is a very intelligent man uh, and a good speaker as well. Uh, and then we move on to something completely frivolous, uh, but, but very humorous, from Andrei Martinov <laughs> in Dot 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 Land. Uh, one of the best pieces, Dot Dot Dot. Uh, and it is essentially a piece of um, AI-powered fake news <laughs> done with the purposes of satire. It's really funny. So check it out. It's a very short piece of video. Uh, and then we come to another one of my references to stuff I know a bit about or whatever <laughs> and old things, and that's James Carden who is a member of a group called uh, US-Russia Accord, who are trying to promote the utility of there being uh, productive and respectful <laughs> relations between uh, the US and Russia, certainly diplomatically, and uh, why not academically as well. Uh, and so there's a discussion between himself and two other people who are, well, one Australian and the other US, who are well-educated in uh, Russian international relations and Russia and its history. And the initial topic of conversation is the Putin slash Carlson interview, and then they move on to other things. And please excuse the terrible audio <laughs> in some of the interview. These people really should up their game on that front. However, there are many and interesting things to be heard. Uh, and it starts with, I thought, a beautiful comment which was, why the hell does Putin begin with 20-minute lecture on uh, Russian history to Carlson? And of course, 
uh, Putin apparently observed that Carlson was a history major, and so you know why the hell not? And no, 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 no. Says one of the commentators that uh, Carden is is discussing this with. He says, "I reckon what we're on about here is this is uh, a turning of the tables. This is Russia saying to the rest of the saying to the rest of the West, look, you've been lecturing us about." You know, how to get on board and understand what's going on in the world. And we're all, you know, playing catch up and da-da-da-da-da. Well, we're fucking done with that shit. We know our own history. Just when now, this time, we're telling you. <laughs> and I think there's a degree of truth in that. Uh, in that I uh, was echoing, I can't remember who, who made the comment now, that the, the, the Russia's done with it. They are sick and tired of the West. You can't trust them. It was the um, complete betrayal by Hollande and uh, Merkel about the mixed to Minsk two Accords. That was it. It's like, oh, all right. Um, we knew that the US couldn't be trusted, and now you guys as well, that's it. Okay, you guys, are, well, we're done. Goodbye. So, and as I said, that that's sort of the... There's a whole sequence of geopolitical events that, that lead to the advantage of the Asian integrationists, uh, their arguments within Russia about where Russia should be headed, and that's it. You know, when, when that comes out, it's like, oh, God. Anyway... So yeah, this is this uh, discussion. Uh, James Carden and Matthew De Santo, Del, Del Santo and Paul Griner. Uh, and then there's a the whole bunch of stuff from Judging Freedom uh, and lots of interesting bits in that, particularly the Douglas McGregor uh, interview. Uh, the Intel Roundtable is always interesting and same with Crook. So, you know, usual story. So there it is. That, that's Other Voices. And now <laughs> on to Section 3. What's been happening in the newsletter? seven things happened. So, starting with the things that are more of a compendium or a reflection than things that are more original, uh, the week began with snafood, <laughs> the state of world affairs, which was merely the fact that I had a nice weekend off <laughs> world affairs, and had a lovely time with an old friend, and then I part <laughs> returned my gaze to the state of affairs, and I went, you've got to be kidding me. So that's not, there was nothing terribly new or revelatory there, but it is worth sometimes just noting how mad stuff is. Uh, and then we got on to interesting articles things. So one of the little uh, compendiums that I put out of interesting stuff that's going on. Uh, and that was, it's very difficult to make uh, uh, things like that have thematic comment content. And so it's just collections of interesting stuff. Although that one had a little bit of a through line to it. Um, and then we had uh, Dalian Wallace. I love these two. I love them. So, and in the first episode, uh, 157, it echoes all of the stuff that I've been talking about during the period they put this out. So it was just like, it dovetails beautifully with a whole lot of articles I put out. So, and then they get on to other things. They are just, they're just like a, an echo of the sort of stuff that, that goes on in these newsletters. So it's just gorgeous. I just go there, collect the metadata from the things and put it out for you guys. And I love listening to them. I have a, a great penchant for the Irish burg, you know. Um, so yeah, they're great. Uh, and then we have some more original stuff. So on completely also ignoring geopolitics, we had On Making Bread. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and there is, of course, a part two to that where I go into The Daily Bread, uh, which will be the title of that article, uh, which I'm working on. It's almost finished. I just <laughs> Other things have been getting in the way like this. Then we had an Anglo-Euro-Russo rift. 
But that, so that's more original work on my part. Just reflecting on what's going on. This is Russia saying to um, the West in particular, fuck off. Um, I expect that there, as some commentators have noted, there is sort of an opening to return to Europe. But the US definitely not. They, the, the US is to be managed the, the US is never going to... The, the Russia won't trust them for generations, as far as I can see. Um, but there was a little comment um, with that Putin made to the journalist which he tends to speak to when he's travelling because there were some things that he didn't get to say in the Carlson interview is the way that some people have been framing this. And he makes a comment that... He's speaking about... What is it? Beerbock. Uh, <laughs> 720 Beerbock. Um, as uh, Christopher <laughs> labelled her, um, that it makes no sense to label the current generation or two of Germany as guilty for the things that their you know parents or grandparents or other Germans did back during the Second World War. This is just stupid. It's wrong. And so the way that some people have interpreted this is that it's a sort of a you know extending a hand towards Germany, saying you know like. We're, we're all good, really. <laughs> um, you just really should get rid of these stupid political leaders that you've got in charge. You know, that, that whole blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, not a good thing. It was your project. You started it. Remember, guys, he doesn't say this in the, in the, um, in the discussion with the journalist, but you know, we all knew this, right? And I was like, guys, you really need to choose your friends, friends more carefully. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, the, 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 there is a major rejection of the Western bloc, right? The EU-NATO bloc and the US. Like, piss off, guys. You just are completely untrustworthy. We see what you're doing. You're running the full-spectrum full dominance war against us, and you've completely failed because you don't know what you're playing with. You're still living in some ancient ideological Cold War era thing, trying to regenerate Cold War II. Those days are over, dude. We've got some serious friends over here on the, on the, uh, on the Western side of the Pacific. And you do not know what you're playing with. So that's what that article is about, essentially. And then that moment in the interview that Napolitano does with, with McGregor, where I identify again a little piece that the interviewee has asked Napolitano to raise as a topic for them to discuss in the interview. Several times I've done this now. Once was the false flag warning by McGowan, and this is another by uh, McGregor. So I'm hoping that I can, um, that I'm providing you a little bit of a service here by distinguishing between what a general blah, 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 flow of the um, questions and, and topic covering by Napolitano, whereas where the, the item being discussed has been pre-inserted into the question order by the interviewee. And so in this case, it was this quite amazing um, two-day meeting between the heads of uh, Egypt and Turkey. And so I tried to provide a little bit of background to that because McGregor took time to frame it. It was beautifully put, you know, there has been no government-to-government relations between these notations for 13 years. Why? What happened? Oh, Morsi. Oh, you know, <laughs> Muslim Brotherhood. Oh. So that's what that's about. Um... And when I was doing the research on it and came across that great article by a uh, lady's name that I could not possibly pronounce um, from Al Monitor, there are all the details. And I looked at that and I just went, this has got SEO written all over it. 
so there you go, SCODI, new acronym. <laughs> Shanghai Cooperation Organization Diplomatic Initiative. And that's what I see behind this. However, I also concur with McGregor that this is a serious thing. There is serious trouble coming down. Um, and I believe he's rightfully fearful of it because he understands that a lot of people are going to die, a lot of stuff's going to get wrecked. It's not just you know some big war goes off. It's then the de- decade of suffering thereafter, but the rebuilding of all the infrastructure. He knows. <laughs> Serious military man. He understands what's going on. So, uh, and for that, I, if you haven't yet read the article, uh, may I suggest that you listen to the audio piece whilst you're reading it. That's designed to go together. It sort of adds dramatic tension. And so that, of course, is, um, um, what is it, Plant and, and so-and-so uh, performing Kashmir with the Egyptian <laughs> orchestra. It's fantastic. It's a masterful piece of performance. It's just amazing. And then lastly, we have an extension of the, uh, what initially was titled Reuters Sitrep, <laughs> And then uh, uh, Reuters SITREP quality uh, audit or review or whatever it was. And so I decided that I'd actually name this satirical <laughs> news organisation with back news. And so this is an extension of that. And I'm putting it out there. If you think that this is fun to use satire to... Because I'm getting sick of taking down um, mainstream media articles. pretty boring. Uh, especially with the topic matter being so um, emotionally distressing. I found this to be a way to approach that uh, work, which is at least uh, more emotionally manageable. So if you like this sort of approach, uh, please let me know by, you know, comments or likes or whatever, um, or just, you know, read it. (laughs) Share it with your friends. (laughs) Like, the more people read it, then it's obvious that people like it. Uh, And on that note, I would make an appeal. If you think that the work that this newsletter is publishing is of interest or of value, uh, and then please share it with your friends. Uh, because, and with that, I close this week in review. Have a good one, or wherever you are. Welcome back to Yes, X or No Audio.